everyone. How is everyone this evening? Thank you so much for that fabulous music. That was great. Yeah, oh, good, good. We got a good group here tonight. That's excellent. want to thank the Lonely Mountain Band as our kin host tonight. Thanks to the Lonely Mountain Band. And uh, I am Maven. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the leader of the of the Mythgard Kinship and uh, also the uh, the sidekick on every server of Narnian, the Loremaster. Um, I wanted to just let you know, and folks on Twitch also know, that um, we are inviting kins to host. As you know, if you've been coming to the class, we always have a kinship hosting. Um, they help us with logistics. After the class is over, they get to have a live uh, chat with Corey. Um, and so whether it's here on Landerval or any server, really, uh, uh, please let me know. You can send me a, uh, an email at trish.lambert, L-A-M-B-E-R-T, at signumu.org, or send me a tell or, or in-game message, and, um, you know, we'll get you on the calendar. And uh, so without further ado, let me make sure I've got him open here so that he can talk. If I can find him. Where'd you go? Where'd he go? <laughs> oh, there he is. Hold on. He stayed in the Signum U chat. Hold on, hold on. There he is. Okay. I will open your mic, John. And I want to introduce uh, Galanir, the founder of the Lonely Mountain Band. And I will now get off stage. Where'd you, where is he? Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Where are you? Yes. Oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Great to be here, everybody. Hail, friends. Uh, may a star shine upon the hour we here have here tonight, or maybe three hours of our meeting. I am Callan um, here of the Lonely Mountain Band, founder of the Lonely Mountain Band Kinship. I am uh, very honored to be here tonight representing the Kinship and my fellow players on the Landreval server, uh, and also to be welcome you, welcoming you to Episode 5 of exploring the Lord of the Rings in this uh, really amazing sub-creative celebration that uh, we call Lord of the Rings Online with our guide, the Tolkien professor, Dr. Corey Olson, Signum University and the Mythgard Institute. To give you a little background, if you don't know, uh, about the Lonely Mountain Band, uh, I started this kinship way back in March of 2008, March 26th actually and, uh, but it was so close to march 25th i think we, we tend to celebrate on the 25th and the anniversary of the ring being destroyed so it's quite amazing to think that we're actually approaching our ninth anniversary coming up this uh, march playing this game finally crafted game in tolkien's secondary world uh, so, it, you know, actually, in fact, Lotro itself is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary. That's pretty amazing to think about that as well. And it's uh, really heartwarming indeed to still be enjoying an MMO-style game after this many years. And I'm really excited, and I'm sure all of you are, uh, to be able to explore the books like this in a scholarly fashion through the Mythgard Institute, to have this beautiful virtual classroom of Middle Earth itself. So if you play Lotrol already, or perhaps after seeing these videos, you are considering trying out the game, uh, the Lonely Mountain Band Kinship is always welcoming new members. We have a very active kinship. We have uh, weekly and monthly events and even large annual events like the upcoming Weatherstock. In fact, Weatherstock 9, I believe we're already up to, is coming up this summer in July, I believe. 
So if you'd like to join us, just make a character on the Landerval server. You can also just go to alesandtails.com, just like it sounds, alesandtails.com, to find out more about our adventures. Uh, you can join the forums there and just say hello. But before I turn it over to Professor Olson, I'd like to share, again, how happy I am to see the Tolkien Professor so involved in Lotro now, the Mythgard kinship. Uh, I finally remember back in, I think it was all the way back in 2010 or so, when I first tried to convince Corey to start playing Lotro. And it's funny because he, he kindly refused to try the game. <laughs> Not because, I don't think it was because he, he didn't think the game would appeal to him, but I think he was just actually scared of how much he might actually like it. Exactly, and, yes. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say now, though, uh, he was probably right in that assessment. Uh, but but I'm, I'm so glad that others uh, have joined the chorus since then and, and convinced him to go on this grand adventure with us. And in this way, I think art really does imitate life. And I think we can all agree in saying it's a dangerous business, Professor Olson. <laughs> logging into Lotro. <laughs> click play, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, without further uh, blathering from me, I'm honored to introduce you uh, our, our explorer-in-chief, Tolkien professor, Dr. Corey Very good. Thank you, John. And it is true, uh, you know, that uh, certainly uh, uh, John and some other members of the Lonely Mountain Band kinship were a big part of, uh, of, of convincing me to play, and they had tried for many years. And, uh, and certainly the Lonely Mountain Band and, you know, the friends that I've had in the Lonely Mountain Band uh, uh, were certainly the reason why I chose Landreval. Uh, for uh, for my server, uh, my, the primary server that I made my characters on when I began. So uh, always good to uh, to hang out with you guys again. Um, all right. Well, this evening we have a really important topic to discuss because tonight we're going to talk about uh, we're going to look closely at the passages. Uh, which provide the answer to one of the questions which I've probably gotten as much as I've gotten any other question. I mean, of course, I get the classics all the time, like who is Tom Bombadil and do Balrogs have wings? Um, but uh, for those of you who have been listening to my podcast all the way back for like the last nine or ten years, uh, may remember the very first Q&A session I ever recorded ever <laughs> was on those two questions because I get them, I still get them all the time. Um, but one of the most popular things, apart from those 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 core basic questions. Um, one of the most popular questions people very very often ask me is, "What's up with Gandalf figuring out or taking so long to figure out the identity of the One Ring?" You know that he 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 seems to like. Why is it? Th- why is this so hard for him? Right? Process of elimination would seem to make it obvious much more soon. So the question is, how much does Gandalf know, and when does he know it? Exactly. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about here today. I think it's a, it's a, uh, so, you know, Gandalf's knowledge is our topic here today. Um, and I am really excited to take a careful look at this, at these passages, because I will tell you, as is almost always the case, as I've said before, uh, when I, when I do this, when I really sit down to, to work my way through these passages slowly, as we've been doing, I always notice all these things that I didn't notice before, and so I, I feel that I have myself a much clearer answer to that question than I've ever really had before. Um, but first, as we did last week, I want to begin with addressing a couple comments and questions uh, that were raised on the uh, uh, the forum. And just uh, quick, let me uh, uh, let me 
remind you of interaction methods. Again, I know we're still fairly new at this. Um, if you go to our Discord channel uh, and click on the, the the text channel Lore Hall Questions for Corey, that's where you go, and, and that's where I'm going to be seeing your comments. I can see the Twitch chat, but I have a hard time keeping up with it. So uh, we're basically leaving the, the, the chat on the Twitch channel for people to talk amongst themselves. Um, but if you have a con- question or a comment for me, then please do put it in the lower hall questions for Corey, and please restrict that to questions for me so that I don't uh, I have hard enough time keeping uh, track of everybody's comments and stuff um, uh, as, as, as we go along. So that'll be good. And, uh, and we do have the forum, lotro.mythgard.org, uh, for you to be able to go and post questions. The, in the, the, the questions for Narnian section, particularly, is what I pay special attention to. People responding to things that we talked about in class or people making observations that they want me to uh, address at, at other times. So, let's start off with a couple of these in my notes and queries section that I began doing last week. Okay, so uh, two. this is two comments uh, from T. Thurston, who's full of good comments and questions lately. Uh, and he says, he just got back from listening to session three. In it, Narnian reads the line, it came to me several times. This is a minor inflection issue, but I wonder if it might convey a slightly different and perhaps more interesting meaning if it were read with the emphasis on me, as in, it came to me. In this case, the meaning is that of all the members of Thorin's company and goblins in the goblin tunnels, it was me the ring came to, not Gandalf, not any of the dwarves, or any of the goblins, but me, the hobbit, so of course it's mine. Um, and Thurston, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, I, I, Narnian may have inflected it poorly, but I do agree with that. Really, either of the two primary words, right? I think that if you say, it came to me, or if you say, it came to me, both of those emphases, I think, really fit and work really well, right? Um, if you emphasize came, right, which I'm pretty sure is how I emphasized it when I read it, um, it came to me. Um, the emphasis is on the volition of, like, either the volition of the ring or, or some sort of marker of destiny, right? In either case, the point is that is Bilbo claiming ownership, right? You know, staking a claim, being able to say, um, this is, this is, I definitely have the right to this, Right? So if he says, it came to me, he's not, what he's saying is, I didn't take it, right? This is not just something I illicitly grabbed. It came to me, right? Either of its own free will or more likely, like, it was destiny, right? That brought it to me and therefore it belongs, and therefore it's rightly mine, right? Or again, um, you know, Thurston, as you, as you say, it came to me, right? I'm the one it came to, and so therefore it's designed for me. Again, I think really in either case, the emphasis uh, fits what Bilbo is really saying there. So I don't actually myself have a really strong uh, opinion. I kind of prefer the first one um, because I think that the fact that it came to somebody, like the, fact that it, the fact that it was him that it came to is like a given in a sense, right? What's not a given is the fact that he didn't steal it or something, right? Which is what Gollum accused him of and which he's going to bring up immediately afterwards. But rather, it came to me. I didn't take it, right? So that's why I tend to emphasize that because that seems to be sort of the uh, the distinction or clarification that um, uh, that uh, uh, that Bilbo seems to be making there. But again, I think either emphasis works. And Thurston's other comment, in the scouring of the Shire, we read that Farmer Cotton's house was down South Lane from the Green Dragon, seemingly nearby. Perhaps Sam wanted to spend time at the Cotton family's local pub for some reason or other. Of course, we won't find out his reason for a long, long time, but it's nice the way this insignificant detail from the opening chapters ties in so well with the ending details not written by Tolkien until years later. At least I assume they were written years 
years later. Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, uh, yes, they were. So um, this is a great point. Uh, I, I think I think this is really neat. Um, I hadn't really thought of that before, of him like hanging around the cottons. Um, but um, one thing I will say, um, uh, Thurston, is that Sam's character though not one of the original characters in the story, that is in the first drafts, there is no Sam Gamgee. He comes in in later revisions of the story. But Sam Gamgee's character is connected to the Cottons from the beginning. In fact, Sam's name is a pun, in a sense, on Cotton. Like, the, 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 the two families are connected, way, you know, several generations back, which you can see on the family tree. Um, but in particular, there's a kind of an inside joke here. In the Birmingham area, um, where Tolkien grew up, um, there was this uh, kind of cotton wool, um, which was called Gamgee tissue. Um, and it was named after Dr. Gamgee, who invented it. But basically, it was one of those situations, right, like the, like happens with Kleenex, right, where the brand name of a thing uh, becomes, like, the common name for the thing, right? You, know, you don't even call it facial tissue, you just call it a Kleenex, right? For Tolkien and the people who lived around Birmingham, they didn't call this stuff cotton wool, they called it Gamgee tissue, um, so Gamgee and Cotton, uh, Gamgee was literally therefore a synonym for cotton, uh, in Tolkien's household. Like that, and not just, it wasn't just idiosyncratic. It was, it was, it, it was in the whole area. Um, so the name Gamgee in that way was, was, and, and this, this of course leads to funny, um, uh, to some funny results. There's, there's a really cool letter. Uh, that that is in Tolkien's collected letters, because of course, since Gamgee tissue was a real thing and named after a real person, there was of course a real family named Gamgee uh, in the area. You know, the family of the dude who invented it. And so, after Tolkien published the Lord of the Rings, he gets a letter from a guy named Sam Gamgee, who said, "Like, I have not read your books yet, but I've discovered that there is a character in it named Sam Gamgee." And Tolkien wrote to him delightedly, saying, "Wow, that's great." He's like, "I I, I hasten to assure you that Sam Gamgee is the." Hero of the entire book, and I hope that you'll like it. And he, he sent him a signed copy of the books, and uh, and and after this, you can see he, he writes a letter to, to to Christopher, his son, being like, oh, you know, OMG, I just got an email from Sam Gamgee. Uh, it was really cool. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's um, uh, that that that's really fun. anyway. The point is, Sam Ga- the connection between Sam Gamgee and the Cottons goes back to the beginning. So. Uh, what I'm saying is, Thurston, I, I would not be a, the least bit surprised uh, if that were in fact the case. Uh, yes, uh, why might he have some other reason apart from you know we were talking that maybe you know Ted Sandyman and and Sam Gamgee both choose the Green Dragon instead of the Ivy Bush because the Ivy Bush is their dad's pub, right? And 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 they want to hang out at their own pub, and that might well be reason enough. Um, but you are correct that there may indeed be another inducement. Uh, for him to uh, to drink at the Green Dragon instead of the Ivy Bush, because it is close to the Cotton family, and it is possible that he could see Rosie or at least hang out with her brothers, thus giving him an excuse to come around the house more. We know that Sam Gamgee and Rose Cotton have an understanding already by this time, uh, so it's uh, at least in the story as it is unfolded later on. Um, we know that that's a thing. So nothing could be more likely, I would say. Uh, but, um, okay, anyway, so uh, two more. Okay. 
Uh, from time to time, uh, Professor Olson has commented on the casting of a very young Elijah Wood as Frodo in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. Rereading the first few pages of The Shadow of the Past, I noticed this passage for the first time. Good on you for noticing stuff for the first time reading carefully. That's excellent. As time went on, people began to notice that Frodo also showed signs of good preservation. Outwardly, he retained the appearance of a robust and energetic hobbit just out of his tweens. Some folk have all the luck, they said, but it was not until Frodo approached the usually more sober age of 50 that they began to think it queer. I don't know how, I don't know enough about acting or directing to judge Wood, Wood's performance, but I think they might have got the actor's age right. First of all, uh, Deedlebaum, thank you very much. Uh, my, uh, first, I would like to thank you for quoting one of the only paragraphs on the first four pages of chapter two that I didn't put on a slide last time. So there we go. We now have pretty much the complete package, and I appreciate your filling in the gaps there. Um, but my main comment about this, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right in, in, in one sense. That is, you're absolutely right that Frodo should look young um, because of the good preservation thing, right? I mean, he does uh, you know, retain the appearance of a robust and energetic hobbit just out of his tweens. The idea that uh, Frodo Baggins should look young, therefore, is appropriate. And if they had done it the way that you sort of suggest, right? Uh, that is, you're, you're, you're sort of speaking like as if more were made of the tension on screen, right? That is to say, the tension of um, uh, people um, like Bilbo and Frodo looking way younger than they should be, right? I mean, if people kept commenting on the fact that, like, you know, you look like a teenager, but really, you know, you're, you're, you're not. You're very much older. That would have been interesting. And I think that that could have been done really interestingly. And uh, Dietlbaum in the same... Uh, uh, in the same comment was pointing out that it would have been really cool if they'd cast a really young Bilbo, right, who at the party should look still 50, right, you know, Hobbit 50, right, so he should still look uh, like a like a, like a a Hobbit barely entering into middle age. Um, and if, you know, you had him standing there next to, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Otho Sackville Baggins, um, who's younger than he is, and yet looks 40 years older, that'd be kind of cool, actually. I think that'd be really neat. The problem is, um, the problem is that uh, the the movie didn't do that. The movie simply made Frodo young. Um, again, it's not exactly that I object to Elijah Wood. Uh, not that I object to his acting. I thought he was fine. Um, nor uh, that I object again to his appearing young. But there was no tension. It, he was not an older Hobbit who just happened to look like a teenager. He was a teenage Hobbit. I mean, you know, he, he, he was, um, he was, he was legitimately the youngest of the, of, of the hobbits, right? And acted in, at many points, you know, I mean, he kind of aged as, as, you know, as time went on, but I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. It's something they can do and they pulled it off well and it works well in the films, but it's a major change is all I've said is that Frodo is not only 50 when the story begins, um, but he's significantly older than the other hobbits and they all look up to, he is very clearly the senior hobbit of the four that are on the journey. And that element really gets lost. He's not clearly the senior hobbit. Um, I mean, really Mary is the one who kind of acts like the senior hobbit in the films. Um, you know, as much as any of them are, you know, none of them act totally mature all the time, but Mary seems to me to be the one who acts the most mature most of the time, uh, you know, until Frodo, uh, uh, grows in stature as the films go on. Um, and, but, and of course 
they took out the gap. They took out the time gap, right? Between chapter one and chapter two in the Fellowship of the Ring, as we've seen, right? In the midst of that, you know, in that passage that Dietlbaum was quoting there, um, 17 years pass. And 17 years do not pass. Um, when Gandalf returns and uh, chucks the ring in the fire in the film, it's what, like, I don't even know, some small, some indeterminate but small number of uh, years uh, have gone by. So, um, or, or number of months, maybe weeks, I don't even know. But it's not 17 years. That time doesn't, that time doesn't pass. So, anyway. Um, all right. Uh, let's... Um, uh, oh, one more, one more. Okay. Um, as I was listening again to last week's discourse on the conversation between Ted Sandiman and Sam Gamgee, I was struck by the way Ted was so desperate to shut down all conversation about queer things you do hear about. And it occurred to me that it won't be so very long in our in-story terms until he's knocking down his old mill and building a new one up to his furry ears in cahoots with Lotho. As a consequence, I was wondering when these cahoots got started. Is Ted already engaged in those shady practices with Lotho, which ended up with the latter owning so much so much that wasn't good for him and worse for so many others? Do we know when Sharky's plans originally started to roll? Was Ted worried that the queer things you do hear about might include rumors that certain hobbits might have been buying up an unreasonable number of properties with nefarious intent, or even that there might be outlandish folks involved? Uh, uh, that from Not a Cat, uh, whose avatar in the forum is, of course, a cat. Um, I love this. Love this reading. I had, n- I had never thought of that. Uh, I love it. Love it. Because absolutely the chronology works. Um, Farmer Cotton will say in The Return of the King that when Lotho comes into Bag End, he had already begun buying up properties and things. That, and the money that he gets to buy up the property properties comes from his trade with Saruman in Isengard. So we know that Saruman has already been interested, has already begun to take an interest in the Shire in previous years leading up to this. And we also know that it's not going to be long after Frodo leaves. You know, what we will learn later on, and I'm jumping ahead here because I figure by the time uh, we get to the end of the Return of the King in the course of our discussions here, we'll all be so much older that we'll barely remember this. But uh, So I figure we might as well talk about it now. Um, uh, Farmer Cotton says that very soon after Frodo leaves that Lotho kind of starts doing the boss thing, right? And the chief sheriff thing. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's, so I love this idea. I, you know, I'd never thought of that is Ted, you know, does Ted have a, have sort of a, another motivation? I mean, I wouldn't be satisfied with that as the sole explanation. I mean, it still seems to me that the primary force of the passage is to emphasize the two different worldviews of Ted Sandyman and Sam Gamgee in particular. Um, and, you know, the kind of super parochial, I don't care about the outside world, I'm not interested in anything beyond my daily experience, and I only care about practical things that are of use in my daily work and making, uh, you know, and making money kind of perspective that Ted Sandyman has seems to me the really important thing, and that seems to be what everybody else in the pub shares. But could Ted also have some other motivation here and be like, queer things? Nope, nothing queer going on here. You know, maybe. I kind of like it. I mean, I do. I do kind of like that point. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's cool. And yeah, 
Gilgalir, uh, it was um, it was in uh, uh, Unfinished Tales. Yeah, it was it was on Unfinished Tales uh, where we learned that Saruman had actually been to the Shire in disguise um, to sort of do reconnaissance and and sneak around um, and try to figure out what Gandalf was getting out of it, basically. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that was definitely that was definitely a thing there. Um, yeah. Now that's interesting. Okay, so uh, the Cookie Mama asks. So you know, a question of correlation versus causation. Could the unwillingness that Ted shows to believe in the queer things lead to his being hoodwinked by Lotho and Sharky? Well, that's interesting. I would say certainly his. Uh, I mean, you'll notice the word I used before was pragmatic, right? His the the pragmatism of his approach to these things, right? You know. Um, uh, you know, I don't. He doesn't see what it has to do with you or me, right? Um, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't impact their lives. It doesn't amount to anything. Um, that outlook certainly would seem to lead relatively naturally into um, the uh, uh, the kind of attitude that's going to lead him to, you know, pull down his mill in order to build a bigger, better, more efficient mill. Uh, and all that kind of thing. So you can see how somebody with that attitude would be an easier mark for Lotho than somebody with Sam's attitude would be, for instance, even if Sam had stayed around home. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- I, think, I, I think it's a really interesting uh, uh, question. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, Okay, all right. Let's uh, let's 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 go on because we have uh, we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about here tonight. Um, what I want to say first here, as I've said already, this is a question I get a lot. But the thing I want to emphasize, I often hear this issue discussed sloppily. Um, and what I mean by that is without really careful attention to what the text actually says. And uh, at, the risk of, at the risk of digressing onto a rant, uh, I, w- I will run that risk briefly, but I think I can avoid it. Um, I often um, get kind of annoyed when people spend time trying to find plot holes in Tolkien or in any other stories, for that matter. Um, I, mostly because... A lot of that kind of thinking tends to be sort of mistaken. Some of it tends to be mistaken in like misplaced ingenuity. Uh, and others, it's not even a... It's not like a... The person who's pointing out the hole in the plot is taking a position of superior cleverness, right? Like, I noticed a, a problem with your story that you didn't notice. Um, uh, but usually, I find anyway, most of the time... The cause of like the what is leading that person to see what they perceive to be a plot hole is their own insufficient interaction with the story itself. Either their insufficient observation of the story itself, um, as often as very often, I find that most of the most of the putative plot holes are actively contra- are very frequently contradicted by the story itself. Um, it's just not reading carefully. Um, and even if they are, even if it's not, even if there's no active uh, contradiction, it reflects a lack of imaginative engagement with the story and what the story itself is doing. Um, the biggest example, of course, with this in Tolkien is uh, the whole, why didn't they use the eagles to fly the ring to Mordor, uh, which is 
at the end of the day, a really dumb story idea. And uh, I'm awful glad Tolkien rejected that because that would have been a crappy story. Um, and of course, as Tolkien himself explained, it wouldn't have worked because they'd have been spotted. And and Sauron had an air force, you know, like it, it, it's 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 not the solution that people like to think it is. But anyway, um, the I find that that really applies here with the Gandalf scene. See, that wasn't that long um, the, because. People will tend to first perceive something which I think is 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 again I, I you know it's a it's a very legitimate question, like why does it take Gandalf not seventeen years, right? Why does it take Gandalf seventy seven years from the time when Bilbo found his ring to this time when he's sitting in 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 Frodo's parlor and explaining about the Ring of Power? Seventy seven years has passed. How does it take Gandalf seventy seven years to figure out what the stupid ring is? Right, um, especially since there's a really pretty small number of rings of power out there. Right, they're, I mean they're, they're not they're not lying all over the ground. Right, so why can't he figure this out? Um, what is the deal with that? Um, so like I said, lots of people talk about this. A lot of people who talk about this, in my opinion do a pretty sloppy job about it because they sort of, having asked that question, which as I say, I think is a good question and a perfectly legitimate question, often tend to settle for really simple answers and don't read the text really carefully. Now, I'm not just trying to bash on people. I have done this myself. I have given sloppy, but I'll give you my favorite sloppy answer that I've given in the past. Um, My favorite sloppy answer to this question was always, you know, this seems to me like a relic, right? That is, because I know in the early drafts of the story, when Tolkien was first working out this story, he had, you know, at one point in the early going, when he was first inventing the Rings of Power thing and, and first wrote the very first draft of this conversation between Gandalf and, of course, his name was Bingo at the time, um, he, there were, like, an indefinite number of rings. I mean, there were, in fact, rings all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, Sauron had just kind of, like, sewed them broadcast around Middle Earth and, you know, like finding one in a random place, nothing could be more likely, right? Um, yeah, no, not Bingo Boffin, uh, Dr. Z, but uh, 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 that's why Bingo Boffin is named that. Um, anyway, so when, Gan- the, when Gandalf first has that conversation with with Bingo, who later becomes Frodo, uh, he, it, it's, you know, it's... It's not obvious. There is not a, a clear process of like elimination by which Gandalf could have arrived at which ring it was, um, and so again, my own sloppy answer had been like, well, you know, maybe like this is just you know Tolkien kind of was in this case sort of insufficiently thorough in his retcon, um, which, as I say, is an, is an almost un- unforgivably sloppy answer because that's exactly the kind of thing uh, that um, Tolkien was super good at. So, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I don't like that answer anymore. So tonight we're going to look and we're going to see what indeed is the situation here. So, okay, we're going to start, as I have on my first slide here, with Gandalf's interest. Note the emphasis that we get about why... So Gandalf returns, right, after Bilbo has left, and watch what happens. It was just at this time that Gandalf reappeared after his long absence. That is, just at the time that Sam was having that conversation with Ted Sandyman. For three years after the party, he had been away. Then he paid Frodo a brief visit, and after taking a good look at him, he went off again. 
During the next year or two, he had turned up fairly often, coming unexpectedly after dusk and going off without warning before sunrise. He would not discuss his own business and journeys, and seemed chiefly interested in small news about Frodo's health and doings. Okay, so notice what we get here, right? What is on Gandalf's mind? What is up with Gandalf? What evidence do we have about Gandalf's outlook? Before in these in these early stages, right in this sta- in the, during the seventeen years between the unex- the long expected party rather, and uh, and the shadow of the path, you know the the chapter two scene. The number one thing that is emphasized, right? What he is most interested in is exactly Finn, Frodo's health and state of mind, right? From beginning to end, that's what you know. He takes a good look at him, right? Uh, that's the, the one thing that he p- pays him a brief visit, and all we're told about the visit is that he took a good look at him and then went away, right? And he, he, then he makes these fairly frequent but very brief visits. Why? What is he doing at these very brief visits? What is the point of his very... Is he coming to brief Frodo? To keep Frodo abreast of what's going on in the world? No. Explicitly no, right? He doesn't discuss his own business and journey. He doesn't tell Frodo stuff, Right? What does he come for? Small news about Frodo's health and doings, right? If it were just small news about Frodo's doings, that would seem, at best, friendly, right? Gosh, you come all, all this way out of your way, right, just to, you know, chew the fat about what I've been up to? That's awful nice of you, Gandalf, right? Um, or it would seem a little strange, <laughs> possibly creepy, right? But no, it's about his health, Right? Small news about Frodo's health and doing so clearly during these seventeen years. Whenever Gandalf, what we are told about Gandalf's visits to Frodo is that he is checking in on him personally. How are you holding up, Frodo? Right? He's not telling him anything. Right? He's not giving Frodo any indication of anything that's happening, but he is showing a marked interest in Frodo's health uh, and state of mind. Right? state of being. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's one thing. So yeah, uh, uh, Eternity is suggesting, you know, he's, he's gathering data. Does he seem to be aging as oddly as Bilbo did? Yes. Is he acting uh, is he acting uh, queer as someone else was uh, was saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's clearly he is interested in, in observing Frodo because he wants to, he clearly wants to see if there are any changes. The fact that his health comes up explicitly suggests that this is a concern. Of Gandalf, right? Have you been healthy? Have you been all right? Have you been feeling all right? Um, okay. Now look at what happens when Gandalf arrives. This is the beginning of their conversation that happens in the morning, right? And this is Frodo alluding to it because apparently they were talking the night before. We were told they stayed up late talking the night before. Uh, and Frodo says, Last night you began to tell me strange things about my ring, Gandalf, and then you stopped because you said that such matters were best left until daylight. Don't you think you had better finish now? You say the ring is dangerous, far more dangerous than I guess. In what way? In many ways, answered the wizard. It is far more powerful than I ever dared to think at first, so powerful that in the end it would utterly overcome anyone of mortal race who possessed it. It would possess him. Now, this is a perfect example of a passage that I have always taken absolutely for granted. Okay, that is to say, I had never given this really a second thought. It was like, well, what's, this is a natural segue into him talking about the rings of power, right? 
No, it's not a natural. I mean, it, it, I'm not saying it doesn't work as a segue, right? It's fine. This is a it's a perfectly acceptable conversational gambit by Gandalf. That's not my point. But my point is, this is not the obvious or exclusive or you know. Um, uh, uh, simplest way for Gandalf to segue into this. That is to say, let's do for a second what I always tell you not to do. Right? I always tell you not to apply what we know from elsewhere, you know, from later on in the story, and try to take this fresh as it has come to us here. For a moment, ignore that. For a moment, bring to this everything that we learn about the Ring later on. Everything that we come to know by the end of the story. Right? Knowing what we know by the end of the books. Uh, and if we were sitting down and starting this conversation with Frodo, there are a number of ways that we could think of starting this conversation, right? We could we could say something like, uh, emphasizing the significance of the ring, right? Um, you say the ring is far more dangerous than I guess. In what way? in that it is the key to the complete destruction of the world order that we know, right? It is the weapon with which the great enemy will destroy all of the realms of, you know, of elves, men, and hobbits uh, across the world, right? I mean, you know, like, there are lots of angles you could take on this. You could start with the political one, right? Uh, you could start with the, the 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 power of the ring over others, right? How dangerous it is to use, how, how you know, all kinds of things, right? What does Gandalf start with? Where is when 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 Frodo asks him, "Tell me about my ring," right? Where does Gandalf's mind go first? Answer: Where Gandalf's mind goes first is, the ring is dangerous, dangerous to the possessor. This ring if you keep it, will do horrible things to you personally. Now, in a sense, if you take a few steps back from this and look at this from a totally cold, uh, abstract viewpoint, right, that's kind of one of the least important elements of the situation. I mean, obviously it's important to Frodo personally, right? But I mean, Frodo personally getting messed up is, again, from a cold, objective standpoint, relatively low down on the list of possible bad outcomes, right, of the ring being around, right? Um, but this is what Gandalf emphasizes first. So notice that, that, that is to say, the topic of their conversation here at first is, this ring is dangerous. It's bad for you, right? And uh, if you keep it, like, it is, this is a really, really powerful ring. How powerful is it? So powerful that you could use it to rule the entire world. No, 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 that's not what he says. So powerful that the Dark Lord will overthrow all... That no one will be able to stand up against Sauron of Mordor if he gets this ring. No, that's not where he goes, right? It's so powerful that it will utterly overcome anyone of mortal race who possessed it. It would possess him. What he starts with, the conversation that Gandalf begins is... Let me tell you the danger that you are in personally. This is what the ring does for you, right? Or could be doing to you or really is doing to you. Um, that's, I think, uh, that I think is a really big deal. Um, 
and to me is really revealing. And this is the thing that I re- that really jumped out at me this time through. So let's 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 keep going. I think we'll begin to see a pattern here. He then segues to history, right? In Eregion, long ago, many elven rings were made, magic rings as you call them, and they were, of course, of various kinds, some more potent and some less. The lesser rings were only essays in the craft before it was full-grown, and to the elven smiths they were but trifles, yet still to my mind dangerous for mortals. But the great rings, the rings of power, they were perilous. A mortal Frodo who keeps one of the great rings does not die, but he does not grow old or obtain more life. He merely continues, until at last every minute is a weariness. And if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes, in the end, invisible permanently, and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the rings. Yes, sooner or later, later if he is strong or well-meaning to begin with, but neither strength nor good purpose will last, sooner or later the dark power will devour him. Okay, now... How long has Gandalf known this? Is this something he's sorted out recently? He doesn't say exactly, but I think no. Clearly no. This is lore, right? Um, This is the kind of thing, you know, later on in the conversation, as we'll see, he's going to say, I've known many things that only the wise know, and I would put this in that category, right? Um, Why? Because there's, there's been opportunity for observation about this, right? The wraithification of the wielders of the Nine is um, known, right? You know, that's, um, that's, a, uh, that's a given. That's established um, by, you know, certainly among the, uh, among the wise. That's, that's been established. So he knows this. He must know this, right? Um, he's not just sorting out the effect that the Great Rings have. So what do we learn... Um, uh, what what do we learn from this passage here? A couple things that I would really point out that I think are crucially important that we need to, we're going to need to keep in mind as we move forward. Number one, the distinction between the lesser and the greater rings. Okay, so there are more rings of power than we might think at first, right? There's the nine, the seven, the three, and the one. There's more than that, though. Right? There are also all these lesser rings kicking around. On the one hand, that would seem to give Gandalf an out, Right? An excuse for not figuring it out sooner. Right? I mean, if Gandalf were in the position of saying, like, so yeah, it was a magic ring on the one hand, but on the other hand, there were like dozens of magic rings, right? Magic rings were totally a fad among the elven smiths of Eregion, right? I mean, they just, they, they, were, they were making magic rings like they were going out of style. So it could have been any one of those magic. How was I supposed to know it was one of the great rings, right? If he had said that, then yes, there would not be a problem. Right, we could then have a story in which Gandalf was like, "Dude, I thought it was a lesser ring. I mean, how was I supposed to guess it was the One Ring?" Right? Uh, but no, Gandalf immediately closes that possibility. Right? Um, uh, as we'll see, he's he's he he he's going to close that in. He's not going to entertain that possibility. So, it's not one of the lesser rings, and it's known the effect that the greater rings have upon the wearer. Okay? The great rings give you long life, right? They don't give you more life, but they make you continue until at last every minute is a weariness. Again, how do we know this? What is the source of this lore? 
the ringwraiths, right? Um, observation of the ringwraiths has uh, has uh, you know they've they've been they've they've probably not been interviewed, right? But they've been observed, and uh, this is the observation that they have made about the current wraiths and the wraithification process. So, um, so we're that's this is a this is a known thing about the great rings and what happens when a mortal gets and keeps one of the great rings. Okay, so this is a known fact of the great rings. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, and, and so, and, and, and we know the difference. This is a difference between lesser and greater ring. So presumably had Bilbo found a lesser ring, um, there's no reason to think it would make him invisible for one thing. The invisibility thing seems to be, uh, connected again, becomes in the end invisible permanently, right? Invisibility being, uh, associated with the great rings anyway, right? Most likely. So in any case, Whatever. If he'd found a magic, a lesser magic ring, it certainly would not have led to his good preservation, right? Um, and the possibility that Thurston had raised... No, uh, no it wasn't Thurston. Um, uh, the possibility uh, that Dietlbaum had raised earlier about casting a very much younger actor uh, than Ian Holm for Bilbo in Fellowship of the Ring. That would not have happened had it been a lesser ring. So, okay, fine. Um... So, yeah, and I agree. Um, Alia, Alia Eru uh, mor- says, uh, mortals seeking to lengthen their lives seems to be a bad thing in general for Tolkien. Yes, yes, when you start messing around there, things go bad very quickly. Um, yes, and Finn, this is the only place I can think of in the published works that Tolkien refers to the lesser rings. They just don't figure in. I, there's not a single story I can think of that they, figured, that they figure into. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there's any reference to them. Um, Carita wonders why the lesser rings are still dan- dangerous to Gandalf's way of thinking. I don't know. And we know nothing else about the lesser rings other than what is said in that singular paragraph right there. So your guess is as good as mine. My guess would be just the fact that they do convey some kind of magic power, and that's probably dangerous. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, I see. Uh, thanks, Lincoln. I didn't miss Valori's comment before. Uh, Valori's comment on Gandalf's observation, right, about his conversational starter. Um, uh, <laughs> Valori's paraphrase was, that nuclear missile you're smoking like a cigar might give you cancer, Right. Yeah, it's almost like that, right? I'm not going to emphasize the nu- the nuclear fallout possibility, right? If if that nuclear weapon falls into somebody's hands, you know, if that doomsday weapon that you have in your pocket falls into the wrong hands, it will lead to the end of the world. What I'm going to emphasize in is is the fact that it it might also, you know, uh it it, it might also give you long-term radiation effects, right? Uh so you should be careful about that. Yeah, exactly. That that's exactly Valori the kind of uh, I was about to say imbalance, but that's not the right word. Um, anyway, the, the sort of that—that's why that focus was so conspicuous to me. Again, you'd think you'd be like, "Yeah, I found out that that thing is a doomsday weapon, right? That seems to be the big deal, right?" But um, you know, that's not where he goes. In fact, um, yeah, good, good. Um, all right, uh, now. So let's keep going. So we have, we, have, we have the Great Rings, we have the Lesser Rings, um, and Bilbo's 
good preservation. Clearly from this description, it seems pretty clear that assuming that Gandalf has known this at least for decades, if not for centuries, and there's no reason to think he hasn't known this, right? Um, that he hasn't had the lore about the rings and the ring wraiths available to him, right? So he, he must have known this. Then he must have observed observed Bilbo's good preservation and therefore conclude, concluded that the ring was a great ring. So this door that he weaves open for himself, he does not go through. Uh, and in fact, later on, he makes this even clearer, right? And this, I think, is the passage which puzzles people more than any. This is my, my, my guess. What, from what I've heard from people, I think that this is the passage people do remember, which confuses them most in trying to understand what the heck is going on with Gandalf, right? And this is later in the chapter. He says, The three, fairest of all, the elf lords hid from him, and his hand never touched them or sullied them. Seven, the dwarf kings possessed, but three he has recovered, and the others the dragons have consumed. Nine he gave to mortal men, proud and great, and so ensnared them. Long ago they fell under the dominion of the one, and they became ringwraiths, shadows under his great shadow, his most terrible servants. Long ago. It is many a year since the nine walked abroad, yet who knows? As the shadow grows once more, they too may walk again. But come, we will not speak of such things even in the morning of the Shire. So it is now. The nine he has gathered to himself. The seven also, or else they are destroyed. The three are hidden still. But that no longer troubles him. And But this re- this reasoning, this line of reasoning, is precisely what seems to trouble many readers. Right? It's like, okay, 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 Gandalf. You know it's a great ring. Right? It's got to be a great ring because it gives long life. You just yourself worked through the 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 list right and every single one is accounted for except for the one so what the heck right why are you so slow on the uptake why didn't you like as soon as bilbo started showing signs of good preservation right so why what why, why didn't you figure this out 50 years ago gandalf right if this is the case um couple things jj that's a really good point Right? J.J. says, did he know the fates of all of the rings at that time? Not necessarily. The general lore about the rings, right? the fact that the great rings had this effect on mortals that bore them and stuff, that, that, that would have been known. No question that would have been known. Um, would he have spoken quite as firmly about this, about the fate of all of the others? Um, possibly. Possibly. There are a couple things that I would say here. Um, first the nine Sauron has gathered to himself you know so, well let me back up a second does this passage prove that the one ring is the only great ring it could possibly have been I would say no I would say no I would think putting myself into Gandalf's shoes 50 years back or whenever it was he first noticed Bilbo's good preservation, I would say he'd have to think there are other possibilities, right? Um, It could be one of the seven, conceivably, because, yeah, like, that three he has recovered and the others the dragons have... Even if they're quite sure that Sauron has recovered three of them, the other four, like, were they there? Do they know for sure that they were destroyed in dragon's fire? Because, I mean, like... 
were there eyewitnesses, surviving eyewitnesses that can definitely attest? Like, I saw the ring melt into slag when the dragon attacked. Like, you gotta think there's at least some room for doubt there, right? That, it, you know, when Gandalf noticed this at first, he's got to at least be thinking, all right, I gotta leave that open. It's a possibility, right? Maybe one of the four is an account, or one of the seven, you know, one of those four surviving of the seven, uh, or maybe surviving of the seven, um, are still available. There's also the nine. Yes. Sauron got them back. Sauron gave them out to mortal men. The mortal men were wraithified, and he took them back. Sauron has the nine rings. The ring wraiths don't wear them. Um, so, okay. He's got them. Does that prove he never gave them out again? He might have done. I mean, do they have his oath on that or something? I mean, like, no, the... You know, the elven wise don't know of any, they have not heard of any other, di- but it's conceivable, right? I mean, you can't absolutely rule out that he's uh, decided to, 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 you know, net himself a few more fish, right, with uh, these perfectly good and indeed proven successful rings of power that he's got in his hand, right? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's and as as uh, as uh, as Binkle says, if Sauron can lose the One Ring, it can lose any of them, right? Yeah. Well, Binkle says a great question, right? What happened to the Nine Rings when Sauron was taken down, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. So again, is it conceivable that one of the Nine could have been out there? Yes. So now I'm not trying to construct a really elaborate case for this. All I would want to say is that I think that it people who read this passage and then think, look, man, it should have been blindingly obvious to Gandalf as soon as he noticed this. I mean, there's only one. I mean, can Gandalf count, right? There's only one option. It's got to be the one ring. No, there are other options, right? Um, so Gandalf 50 years ago had cause for uncertainty. Even if he was sure it was a great ring, he had some cause for uncertainty, I would say. Um, and remember, there's another factor, right? Um he has no more reason to believe that the One Ring is available to be found than he does to believe that the Seven or the Nine are available. It's not that the situation was not the Three are accounted for, the Seven are accounted for, the Nine are accounted for, the One is on the loose, and there's this random Great Ring we found, right? But I don't know what it is, right? That's not the situation. If you had asked Gandalf before the finding of the Ring or even after the finding of the Ring, right, and said, Gandalf, what is the current status of the Rings of Power? He would have said, they're all accounted for, right? The nine are accounted for, Sauron has them. The seven are accounted for, right? Three Sauron has recovered, and four of the others the dragons have consumed. The three are accounted for, we know where they are. The one is accounted for. It was rolled down the river to the sea. Saruman knows this, right? Saruman has done research on this. He is the expert. And he's not just suspected, he is stated. He's like, I've, his, his, according to his research... He can tell you what happened to the One Ring. It's at the bottom of the ocean. So, I mean, so frankly, which is more likely, right? Is it more likely that Bilbo randomly found the One Ring at the roots of the Misty Mountains when it was supposed to be at the bottom of the ocean? Or that it could... I mean, I think as a couple of people were saying before, since it was found at the bottom of the Misty Mountains, like, that kind of says Dwarf Ring, doesn't it? Right? Um... I mean, Gandalf knows it's not the Ring of Thror, 
or the Ring of Thran, really. I mean, it's it's not the Durin's clan ring because he knows he talked to Thran and he knows you know th- and he 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 knows that it was taken from Thran with torment in Dol Guldur, so he knows that Sauron has that one. Um, but you know, it could have been a, could 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 be another dwarf ring, right? Brought there by goblins. So you know, who knows? Maybe they brought it down from Gundabad. Could be any number of things, right? Um, but certainly, that's got to look on the face of it more plausible than the idea that it's the One Ring. When everybody knows, because Saruman has told them, that the One Ring is at the bottom of the ocean, right? So, um, so this passage, I think, is not quite so cut and dried as it would uh, seem to be at first. Now, let's go back. As I said, this was kind of jumping ahead because I wanted to address this general sort of process of elimination issue uh, before we go back and continue looking carefully at the conversation as it unfolds. So remember, Gandalf's beginning, right? Um, This ring is a big deal because it will come to possess you in time. Um, How long have you known this? This is right after Gandalf has done his Inneregian speech, right, and explained about how uh, about the rings of power and the great rings. How long have you known this? asked Frodo at length. And how much did Bilbo know? Bilbo knew no more than he told you, I am sure, said Gandalf. He would certainly never have passed on to you anything he thought would be a danger, even though I promised to look after you. He thought the ring was very beautiful and very useful at need, and if anything was wrong or queer, it was himself. He said that it was growing on his mind, and he was always worrying about it, but he did not suspect that the ring itself was to blame, though he had found out that the thing needed looking after. It did not always seem it did not seem always of the same size or weight. It shrank or expanded in an odd way, and might suddenly slip off a finger where it had been tight. Yes, he warned me of that in his last letter, said Frodo, so I have always kept it on its chain. Very wise, said Gandalf. But as for his long life, Bilbo never connected it with the ring at all. He took all the credit for that to himself, and he was very proud of it. But he though he was getting restless and uneasy, thin and stretched, he said a sign that the ring was getting control. Now, um, here's... Here's the thing I notice here. And again, this is... um, This is in that line of things I noticed for the first time looking through this carefully this week. Gandalf doesn't answer the question. (laughs) Remember... Let's go back for a second. He starts off saying, Far more powerful than I ever dared to think at first, so powerful that in the end it would utterly overcome anyone of mortal race who possessed it, it would possess him. Right? And then explains the background about the great rings for the same end. Sooner or later, later if he is strong or well-meaning to begin with, but neither strength nor good purpose will last, sooner or later the dark power will devour him. Right? This is a ring that devours its wielder, that devours its possessor, it will possess him. In response to his saying that, Frodo says, how long have you known this? And Gandalf doesn't answer. Or rather, he chooses to answer the second question. How long have you known this? And how much did Bilbo know? And he answers the Bilbo question. Oh, Bilbo knew no more than he told you, I am sure. Yeah, but Gandalf, how long have you known this? Right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Gilguir, he does answer in the genuine Gandalf fashion, it's true. Um, yeah, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think he's just being cryptic here. Um, he's okay. So he um, uh, he he responds to the question um, by answering the second question: How much did Bilbo know? Oh, Bilbo didn't know this, right? Yeah, nothing to worry about there. Um, Bilbo, uh, Bilbo didn't lie to you about it, um, and uh, you know, and it's, and he, he's he's so Gandalf's clear about that, right? Bilbo didn't know, um, though he does point to the evidence that Bilbo was coming under the influence of the ring, right? A sign that the ring was getting control. Um, notice also, by the way, how he's kind of changed the subject halfway through this paragraph, right? Bilbo never suspected the ring, right? Though he noticed it was kind of squirrely. He noticed the ring had a will of its own. Okay, all right. Yeah, but Gandalf, um, how long have you known that this ring that I have is like eating my soul? Exactly, right? How long have you known all this? Asked Frodo again. Frodo notices, right? After going back and forth with him on the Bilbo question, which, of course, Frodo is interested in because he does want to know how much Bilbo knew and if Bilbo's okay, right? But then he returns to his question, which Gandalf hasn't asked. How long have you known all this? Asked Frodo again. Known? Said Gandalf. I have known much that only the wise know, Frodo. But if you mean known about this ring, well, I still do not know, one might say. There is a last test to make, but I no longer doubt my guess. That seem a little dodgy to anybody. Gandalf is good morninging. <laughs> Frodo, do you notice that? Remember the exchange he has with Bilbo in chapter one of The Hobbit, right? When Bilbo uses the word good morning for three different things. You know, he's he's... He doesn't straight up answer the question. Even He's not just avoiding it, right? He's not going to permanently dodge the question. But he seems really kind of reluctant to just come out and answer this question. How long have you known that the ring in my possession would be slowly devouring my soul? The answer seems to be at least 17 years. And Gandalf does not come out and say that. What do you mean, how, much, how long have I known? Right? Lots of this stuff I've known for a very long time. But if you mean known about this ring, well, I still don't know, one might say. Right? I haven't proved it, uh, but I no longer doubt my guess. I've been guessing. I will admit I've been guessing about this, that, that this was probably true of this ring. Been guessing that for a while, but, but I wasn't really sure or anything. I, 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 I honestly think that Gandalf is squirming a little bit here. I think that Gandalf feels guilty. I really do. And that never struck me before in reading this passage. Um, because, of course, when you look at this whole situation... It is the one thing which is most questionable. If you want to call Gandalf in question, 
See, again, I, I find that the, 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 the initial reaction, the reaction that so many people have to this passage, passage is to question Gandalf's intelligence, right? How could you possibly not figure this out? That, in the end, I don't think is at issue. I think Gandalf applied his intelligence perfectly well. Uh, I think what's at question is Gandalf's willingness to throw Frodo under the bus, right? If you knew that this thing was this dangerous to the possessor on the day I came into possession of it, why did you not warn me? Right? Why have you let me go on possessing it for 17 years? Um, it's a good question. Right? Now, the answer to that I don't think is simple. I don't think that Gandalf is merely making excuses. Yes, he was guessing and he wasn't sure. But let's look at how he's going to... He, let's, 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 let's let him carry on his, his explanation. I just wanted to draw attention to how squirrely he is at the beginning when Frodo asks this question a second time, right? When did I first begin to guess, he mused, searching back in memory. Let me see. It was in the year that the White Council drove the dark power from Mirkwood, just before the Battle of Five Armies, that Bilbo found his ring. A shadow fell on my heart then, though I did not know yet what I feared. Okay, so the the year that Bilbo... When Bilbo found the ring, at the time of The Hobbit, a shadow fell on Gandalf's heart, he says. Right? Now that's kind of vague, right? Nothing real specific there. He doesn't know for sure what the problem is. But he does know it's about the ring, right? You know, his next sentence shows. It's not like, I had a vague premonition, but about what? No, it's about the ring. He knows that. Right? I wondered often how Gollum came by a great ring, as plainly it was. That at least was clear from the first. Okay, so again, this is the this is the moment that I was referring to before, where Gandalf does not try to get off on the lesser ring charge, right? Um, he doesn't try to use the excuse, maybe it was only a lesser ring, could have been, might have been, right? How was I to know? No. He says, from the first, it was clear. It was obviously one of the great rings. And he wondered, how did Gollum come by that great ring? Right? Because that's just weird. And a shadow fell on his heart. The shadow associated with his doubt about the nature of this ring and its origin. It's one of the great rings. Which one is it? Now, because keep in mind, which one is it? This does not mean, is it dangerous or not dangerous? If it's a great ring... It's dangerous, right? Full stop. Remember, Gandalf himself explained that. He didn't say, some of the great rings have this effect on mortals. All of the great rings have this effect on mortals. Would the, would the elven rings turn you into a wraith? Probably not, but who cares? They've never been lost, and we know where they are. So it's as that those, the three rings are really the only ones that he can be 100% sure are not Bilbo's ring, right? In, of course, in large part because he's got one of them on his own hand. So um, he knows that it's not one of the three rings. So that's obviously kind of off the table. But any of the other rings, so if it's one of the seven, it's one of the nine, or if it's the one, it's bad news, right? The seven, the, all of those rings were designed by Sauron, and they were designed for domination of others, in the case of the one ring, or the enslavement of the wielders, in the case of both the seven and the nine. Now, remember, the seven didn't work that well, but that's because of the dwarves and, and who the dwarves were and how the dwarves were, were made, right? The dwarves turned out to be too tough and stubborn to become wraiths. Uh, 
it still had negative impact on them. Um, but this is why, I mean, I've, I've joked before and called Sauron's attempts to recover the seven rings, a recall order because they didn't work. Right. Um, they didn't turn, they didn't create dwarf wraiths, which is what he was going for. And, and they, and they, but still that's what they were made for. Presumably if a non dwarf had a dwarf ring, it would wraithify him. Right. Um, because again, it's not that the ring themselves were faulty in design. It was that the dwarves themselves were, uh, were too stubborn, uh, to be overcome by that design. Hobbits probably would if they had a dwarf ring. So, okay. He knows it's a dwarf. He knows it's a great ring from the beginning. Uh, plainly it was right. That was clear. It's plainly and clear. He says in that same sentence, right? So he's not trying to get himself off, uh, in that way. So, okay. Then I heard Bilbo's strange story of how he had won it, and I could not believe it. When I at last got the truth out of him, I saw at once that he had been trying to put his claim to the ring beyond doubt. Notice, at once, again, right? How long was it until he, until he winkled the story out of Bilbo, the true story? Not long, not many years, right? Might have been that same year. In any case, it, it's it, not decades, right? So soon after the Battle of Five Armies, soon after the time of the Hobbit, Gandalf knows that the ring is a great ring and that as he goes on to say uh, uh, here, see, when I last got the truth out of him, I saw at once that he had been trying to put his claim to the ring beyond doubt, much like Gollum with his birthday present. The lies were too much alike for my comfort. Clearly the ring, no, clearly, again, clearly the ring had an unwholesome power that set to work on its keeper at once. Thus confirming, of course, that it's one of the great rings designed by Sauron to enslave the wielder. Right. Uh, That was the first real warning I had that all was not well. I told Bilbo often that such rings were better left unused, but he resented it and soon got angry. There was little else that I could do. I could not take it from him without doing greater harm, and I had no right to do so anyway. I could only watch and wait. Um, Now, notice... Gandalf says clearly he worked the whole thing out a long time ago. This is definitely a great ring. This is definitely bad news. This is definitely one of Sauron's rings designed for enslaving the wielder, and Bilbo has it. That's bad. So what did he do? Answer, nothing. Why did he do nothing? Why didn't he... What what could he do? Right? He tried to convince Bilbo not to use it, right? He tried to... But he couldn't take it away from him. Bilbo wouldn't give it up. And he couldn't take it from him. He says, <clears throat> without doing greater harm. I, of course, always read that as doing greater harm to Bilbo. Right? That Bilbo would have been harmed even more had he tried to seize the ring from him. Which is probably true. But, of course, he might mean that in a bigger sense as well. If he took the ring from Bilbo, think about what that would mean. Who would become the possessor of the ring then? Gandalf. How would Gandalf be beginning his possession of the ring? By taking it by force from a friend. In fact, it would have been Smeagol and Diego all over again, except a less of, a, of an even fight, right? Um, yes, much greater harm would have been done because the ring itself would have been given a much greater power over Gandalf had he, in fact, acquired it with really good motives, but under those circumstances, yeah, that would have been a complete catastrophe. Gandalf knows enough to suspect that, 
right? Taking it by force is bad news. How do you know it's bad news? Because I had no right to do so anyway, right? That's kind of your first warning, right? Um, uh, you know, Gandalf is playing it safe and saying, let's not try to justify the means by the ends, right? Which is generally a good call in Middle-earth that almost always turns out to be true. So, okay. Um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, 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 Torindur is saying, is, there, uh, is this less of an evasive defensiveness and more of a moment of candor and vulnerability from Gandalf about the frustrating predicament of dealing with this great ring? Oh, we definitely get that, uh, you know, Torindur. I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to suggest that I think that uh, Gandalf is being evasive and unreliable all the way through. From this this paragraph I've been reading, from when did I first begin to guess, I do think that Gandalf is being open and candid. Um, what strikes me is that first paragraph, which I really think is Gandalf saying, uh, um, I don't really want to just come out and answer that right off. Right. Um, he'll get around to it, but he doesn't want to go there. And I think, I, I think it feels awkward. I think it feels guilty. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Gilgonthir, exactly. I mean, the, the disaster that could have happened had he tried to take the ring, this would have put him on the fast track to to becoming Sauron's rival, absolutely. Um, like, Gandalf seizing the ring of power from Bilbo by force would have been, like, the fulfillment of the ring of power's ideal dream, right? Um, okay, all right. Um, more. I might perhaps have consulted Sarum in the White, but something always held me back. Who is he? asked Frodo. I've never heard of him before. Maybe not, answered Gandalf. Hobbits are or were no concern of his, yet he is great among the wise. He is the chief of my order and the head of the council. His knowledge is deep, but his pride has grown with it, and he takes ill any meddling. The lore of the Elven Rings, great and small, is his province. He has long studied it, seeking the lost secrets of their making. But when the rings were debated in the council, all that he would reveal to us of his ring lore told against my fears. So my doubt slept, but uneasily. Still I watched, and I waited. Okay, so, what is Gandalf revealing here? Uh, first, a shadow fell on his heart. What I think he's saying, he knows it was a great ring, right? And there is something deep inside Gandalf that is telling him, it's the one ring. This is totally the one ring. He's suspecting that. So he's guessing that, in, at least in the back of his mind, he's suspecting that from the very, very beginning, right? And that's, what, that's why he says that his doubt slept when he heard Saruman's assurances that, oh yeah, the One Ring accounted for, bottom of the ocean, no worries, right? The bottom of the ocean thing doesn't get quoted until the, the Council of Elrond, so I'm kind of cheating in saying that. But anyway, he does say that everything he would reveal told against my fears. By the way, side note, why didn't he consult Saruman in the White? What held him back? Is this suggesting that Gandalf is already distrusting Saruman? That can't be true, or else he wouldn't be heading down to Orthanc, which is still in the future when Gandalf says this, right? Why? What is it that holds him back from saying something to Saruman in the White? The answer, I think... See, no, I don't think that it's that he's already aware or has some suspicion of Saruman. He doesn't suspect Saruman yet. Think about it. Think about what it would mean. If he comes to Saruman and says, Hey, Saruman, um, so... 
I found this ring, and I think it might. I think it, it's pretty obviously a great ring, right? Uh, I think it might be the one ring. Um, what's Saruman going to say? I mean, we know that Saruman is going to be like mine, but that Gandalf doesn't suspect that yet. Knowing that Gandalf doesn't suspect that yet, why would Gandalf hold back from asking him that? Because remember, Saruman has the, is the one who has told him the One Ring is accounted for, right? I know it. Believe me, I I'm the chief of your order and the head of the council. My my knowledge is deep, and the lore of the Elven Rings, great and small, is my province, right? These are all the things that Saruman says, right? He is he is the most learned of the wise, especially in this area. He has studied the rings of power more than anybody else. And he, with his very considerable authority, says it can't be the ring of power. He says the ring of power is gone. It's out of the picture. It's accounted for. So if Gandalf is going to raise his hand at the meeting and be like, um, are you, are you sure? <laughs> right? Like, maybe it's not. I mean, I'd hold back, especially knowing that you know, uh, his uh, knowledge is deep and his pride has grown with it and he takes ill any meddling, right? you're going to get your head bitten off if you say that in the council meeting, right? I mean, so basically, and what does he have, right? What does he have to, uh, to oppose Saruman's guess, right? What does he have, or uh, to oppose Saruman's lore? Just his guess, right? His, like, vague, like... He'd be like, hey, um, Saruman, I know you've been studying this for, like, centuries and stuff, but I gotta tell you, a shadow has fallen on my heart, and I, I, I'm feeling it, man. I think the One Ring is at large. Kind of weak, right? I mean, that's kind of weak. Saruman is probably not gonna have... I mean, again, even, even, even if we were assuming that... Even imagining a situation in which Saruman was not a traitor, Saruman would be pretty cheesed off by that. You, you gotta think he would be, Right? I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Intuition. Like, if a shadow fell in your heart, let's throw the findings of my centuries of research right the heck out the window, shall we? Right? So, yeah, he holds back, right? He doesn't talk to Saruman about it. He he does, you know, he... So, and and again, it seems... Uh, he has the assurance that the One Ring is out of the picture. It can't be, right? So he watched and waited. He knew all along it was a ring of power... He knew all along it was a great ring and therefore dangerous. It's at least one of the seven or the nine, right? And those are bad news for the wielders. But he's keeping an eye on Bilbo. And what else is he going to do? Take it from him by force, right? What can he do? Keep an eye on him. That's what he can do, right? Watch and wait. That's what he can do. So so that's what he's done. Yeah, John Osclos, I agree. An unfallen Saruman would not believe Gandalf at all. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and all seemed well with Bilbo. And the years passed. Yes, they passed. And they seemed not to touch him. He showed no signs of age. The shadow fell on me again. But I said to myself, after all, he comes of a long-lived family on his mother's side. There is time yet. Wait. And I waited. Until that night when he left this house. He said and did things then that filled me with a fear that no words of Saruman could allay. I knew at last that something dark and deadly was at work, and I have spent most of the years since then in finding out the truth of it. Okay, so as soon as he found out the truth about Bilbo's ring, 
he suspected. He had a dark guess, a dark suspicion. Maybe this is the one ring. It's definitely a great ring, maybe the one. But he doesn't have real good reason to think that. And Saruman keeps saying, look, my research tells you, I'm going to tell you, I can prove it. It can't, it, it, you know, the one ring is accounted for. So, okay. I'll watch him, I'll wait, because there's nothing else I have the right to do anyway. And then 60 years pass. Then, chapter one, right, conversation that we looked at two weeks ago. Bilbo's doing the whole my precious thing, right, and the, the whole back and forth, and the my hand is not obviously under my own control, and that you know, all the stuff that we saw, the, the evidence that the, of the kind of power that the ring has over him, right? And at that point, that's when he says he knew. Right? He knew. Now, the, the shadow fell on him again, right? Um, the shadow fell on him again as he watches Bilbo not age. Confirms it, man. Definitely a great ring. Uh, something dark and deadly is definitely a work. Um, and he begins to sus- clearly begins to suspect. And yeah, uh, Binkles, yes, the other great rings would make Bilbo long live. Certainly, certainly the nine. That was the whole gig with the nine. Right, you know, I mean, uh, you know, clearly, uh, when when Sauron dangled the nine rings in front of the el- the the human kings who ended up taking them, it was like immortality, right? That was the lure uh, that he uh, that he used to get them to take the ring. So clearly, clearly, the increased longevity, ending ultimately in wraithification when you become so thin and stretched. You know, remember the the butter and the enormous piece of bread that we were talking about before. Um, clearly, that's how the the nine rings would work as well. So it's not that this proves that it couldn't be one of the nine. But this, remember, it all started for Gandalf with, a, with, a, with an intuition anyway, right? Um, again, the purely intellectual deduction, right? The pure, like, uh, uh, process of elimination doesn't prove anything. Because, again, you can't prove it's not one of the seven or one of the nine as, as, as much as they might think they know. Right, they can't. They couldn't prove it. What Gandalf has been going on all along has not been knowledge, but a hunch, the shadow that was on his heart. Right, and at the time of the party, he becomes much more concerned. Right, this is a really big deal. It had an effect on him right away, and that effect is really pronounced. This ring that he has is a big deal. Ever since Bilbo left, I have been deeply concerned about you. Yeah, yeah. And notice how he immediately says, I, I, yes, I've been worried about you, right? He admits, like, you were in trouble. You've been in trouble, right? You've been in harm's way ever since you took that ring. And I, am, I Gandalf, am now admitting I knew that that would happen. I knew that that was been happening. But remember, we saw that already. That's why whenever he comes, he's just focused on Frodo's health. How you been feeling? You all right? You holding up okay? Um because he wants to make sure that it's not getting too bad too quickly. He he does seem poised to intervene if Frodo shows any signs of, you know, early wraithification or anything like that, right? Um but he um he doesn't uh he doesn't see anything overly alarming, right? So he leaves it. Right? Um but notice it's not just here now he begins to broaden it. Ever since Bilbo left, I have been deeply concerned about you and about all these charming, absurd, helpless hobbits. 
It would be a grievous blow to the world if the dark power overcame the shire. If all your kind, jolly, stupid bulgers, horn-blowers, boffins, brace-girdles, and the rest, not to mention the ridiculous bagginses, became enslaved. Notice what Gandalf has done there. In the first half of a sentence, he admits, How long have you known that this ring... Remember the answer to the question that Frodo asked twice? How long have you known that this ring that I had would, like, possess me and devour me? Answer, yeah, 17 years. Minimum. Maybe closer to 70. Actually. Right? Is the answer. And he admits that. I've been... And and says, I've been deeply concerned about you, but notice where he goes from there. Here's the problem, Frodo. It's not just about you. This is not just a... This is not just a we-need-to-find-a-safe-way-to-dispose-of-radioactive-waste kind of situation, right? I feel bad that I parked that radioactive waste at your house uh, because it's totally screwed up your genetic material, and I feel bad about that, but it had to be somewhere, so, you know, that's not the situation. And he immediately now puts it in the bigger picture. This is not just about you being enslaved. Like, yes, I've known. I've known that the ring was enslaving you and that this could be dangerous for you was definitely dangerous for you but what is at risk here is the enslavement of everybody in the Shire the dark power overcoming the Shire and enslaving all hobbits everywhere and everybody else but for now let's stick to hobbits right? let's kind of let this hit home to Frodo by leaving the ring in your possession I put you at risk but by doing so I was able to keep the ring out of the way and hidden for the last 17 years in a place where I knew it would be and with a a bearer that I could trust, trust both to hold on to the ring and be responsible with it, not lose it, right? And also that I could trust not to go wild with it, you know, and be overcome and become evil, right? Um, Like Gollum did. Um, And just in case he's going to come and check in on Frodo. Because it's not just like, are you feeling okay? Are you still healthy? It's like, have you been feeling evil lately? <laughs> right? Have you started, like, spying on people and murdering folks? Just asking, out of curiosity, right? I mean, clearly he's, he's checking on his sort of moral status as well as his physical status and mental status as time goes on, right? Um, so I, I'll check in on you. and make. Sh- but again, what else is he going to do? What else is he going to do? He's not left the ring with Frodo because he's only just now figuring it out. You know, so when... And again, sometimes people talk about this passage this way. Like, Gandalf is here in Frodo's sitting room saying, like, man, I feel like such an idiot. Like, the one ring has been under my nose for 77 years and I never suspected. That's not what he says. He suspected it 76 years ago at least. And he's been pretty darn sure. Well, not pretty darn sure. He's been very actively suspicious for the last 17 years. He knew. That's why he did nothing. He left the ring where it was because... um, He left the ring where it was because it was safer there. Um, Safest than... You know, safer than it would be uh, anywhere else. Um, So, uh, yeah. Uh, Maven, I'm getting some background noise from you there in the room. Why don't you know your mic was hot in case you didn't notice. Um, Though I think uh, your parrot Buddha might have something to contribute to the conversation as he so often does. He's very reliable that way. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, 
so anyway, so so yeah, so Gandalf immediately then puts it into context there in that first paragraph. Yes, yes, I left this dangerous radioactive nuclear warhead with you because it was the only thing I could do. What else could I do? I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it away. There was no safer place to put it, right? Leaving it here so that nobody else knew about it, right? Its secrecy was its best protection. So he runs with it, right? Um, Frodo shuddered. But why should we be, he asked. And why should he want such slaves? To tell you the truth, replied Gandalf, I believe that hitherto, hitherto, mark you, he has entirely overlooked the existence of hobbits. You should be thankful, but your safety has passed. He does not need you. He has many more useful servants, but he won't forget you again. And hobbits as miserable slaves would please him far more than hobbits happy and free. There is such a thing as malice and revenge. Revenge? said Frodo. Revenge for what? I still don't understand what all this has to do with Bilbo and myself and our ring. Notice how interesting that statement is in itself. Like they've been, he's been explaining all this, but it's true. Gandalf hasn't explained what all of this has to do with Bilbo and myself and our, and our ring. He hasn't explained how he knows for sure about this. He hasn't explained what the big deal is. All he's emphasized is, it's dangerous for you. He's just now said all of the hobbits in the Shire could be enslaved because of this ring. Right, that like there's a there's a there's an implicit alternative. I either could have left you exposed to danger, or I could have exposed the entire Shire to greater chance of enslavement. Right, that was the choice that Gandalf made. That, that was the call Gandalf had to make. And Frodo doesn't get it. Why would they be? What's that? I don't. He doesn't understand. Right. And again, why would he? Gandalf has not explained it yet. He's been focusing only on the danger of the ring. Then. Um, uh, yeah, it has everything to do with it. You do not know the real peril yet, but you shall. I was not sure of it myself when I was last here, but the time has come to speak. Give me the ring for a moment. So this is where Gandalf admits when he says, remember at the beginning he says, I still don't know, right? But I no longer doubt my guess. He's been guessing. He'd been guessing for 76 years, but he'd been doubting his guess. And his doubt had waxed and waned over the years with Saruman and the shadow in his heart, right? Um, When he was last here, nine years before, he says he still wasn't sure. He was guessing, right? He's admitting, I guessed that it was the One Ring, but I still, I didn't, he didn't have any way to be certain, right? He still couldn't know for sure. Now, he knows of a test. Well, then look. To Frodo's astonishment and distress, the wizard threw it suddenly into the middle of a glowing corner of the fire. Frodo gave a cry and groped for the tongs, but Gandalf held him back. Wait, he said in a commanding voice, giving Frodo a quick look from under his bristling brows. No apparent change came over the ring. After a while, Gandalf got up, closed the shutters outside the window, and drew the curtains. The room became dark and silent, though the clack of Sam's shears now nearer to the windows could still be heard faintly from the garden. For a moment the wizard stood looking at the fire. Then he stooped and removed the ring to the hearth with the tongs, and at once picked it up. Frodo gasped. "'It is quite cool,' said Gandalf. "'Take it.' Frodo received it on his shrinking palm. It seemed to have become thicker and heavier than ever. Um, notice Gandalf's confidence here. He knows what he's going to find. Um, he is clearly right when he says, "'I no longer, uh, I no longer doubt my guess.' Right. Uh, 
Um, he doesn't doubt it any longer. You can tell on account of how he doesn't even he doesn't even check to make sure it's cool. He knows this is the one ring. He knows that the one ring is not even going to be heated up in an, in an ordinary fire. So as soon as he puts this gold ring down, he just immediately picks it up off the hearth with his fingers. Because um, uh, he knows. He's, he's sure. He is sure. Um, and of course, this is lovely foreshadowing, right? There's uh, 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 Gandalf casting the ring into the fire. Um, Notice another thing, another line here that jumped out at me. Um, For a moment, the wizard stood looking at the fire. Um, No, wait, let's see. uh, No, right here. Wait, he said in a commanding voice, giving Frodo a quick look from under his bristling brows. He's still assessing Frodo, right? Part of what he wanted to establish here was Frodo's state of mind. How far under the ring's control are you already, Frodo? Right? What is his reaction? If I chuck this thing in the fire, what's his reaction going to be? Right? And yes, Colin, you're, you're right to remember that Gandalf's bristling brows, uh, that's, a, that's a, a far more intimidating expression than it might be in those of us with merely mortal eyebrows. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, his... Uh, his, his eyebrows stick out past the brim of his hat, a feat which, as I've said before, is my lifelong goal to accomplish. I have so far to go still. Um, but, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly, Verowin, he's trying to figure out how precious it is to Frodo, right? And we can see him assessing there uh, and trying to... And trying to f- he's been watching Frodo carefully. He's still watching Frodo carefully, right? Um, so... In conclusion, I was going to, I'm going to, uh, and yes, Philman, unlike in the movie, Gandalf handles the ring. Absolutely. Um, and oh, by the way, thinking of the confidence here, notice how unlike that moment in the film this is. Remember in the film when uh, he hands the ring, the hot ring, he will, with the tongs, right, gives it to Frodo so that he never touches it himself. Um, and uh, he asks Frodo what he sees, and Frodo says nothing. It, you know, like the, the letters don't appear right away in the film, right? And so he says nothing. And Gan- we see Gandalf's face, right? And Gandalf looks relieved, like, phew, right? Oh, I was worried that it was the, the One Ring, but I guess it's not. That's a relief, right? And then Frodo says, wait, there are fiery wetters. And then Ian McKellen does that wonderful, you know, when he delivers his next line, there are a few who can, right? He, he does that thing. He's like, you know, reluctant, sort of almost certainly dry kind of like, yeah, I knew this was coming. Darn it. Right. Uh, kind of thing. That's, um, that's not Gandalf, right? That's not Gandalf's. He knows he has no doubts. Um, he's not hoping against hope that it's not really the one ring. He knows this is the one ring, right? This is the final test, right? This makes it certain without any doubt. This gives him proof. He, he, he can now prove it in court, but he knew already. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, now, you know, I, you know, Lincoln is saying that he was, uh, uh, when Gandalf says, don't give the ring to me, to Bilbo, um, that he's, uh, Lincoln's talking about how he's reading that as being sort of f- fear of temptation. Lincoln, I'm not sure that that is wrong, actually, because think about it this way. If Bilbo gives the ring to Gandalf, even briefly, if, Bil- if Bilbo says to Gandalf, 
you take the ring. Hold it for Frodo. Right? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? The ring, that's all that opening the ring needs to start the rationalization process. If Gandalf accepts it, even briefly, right? If he accepts it, then you could say he becomes a, he becomes a, a, a bearer, right? He becomes a possessor of the ring. He's totally planning to give it up super, super soon, right? He's only going to hold this for like a few minutes, probably. But he will be the possessor of the ring in that time. And how quickly would the ring start to work on him, right? It really would be for the best... You don't want to put Frodo... You, you shouldn't put Frodo through this, right? You should really hold on to it yourself. It would be in Frodo's best interest for you just to keep it, right? And betray the trust of your friend who gave it to you to pass on to Frodo, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the opportunities that... Did, the ring-induced monologue writes itself, right? That Gandalf might have had. So, Lincoln, I still think that Gandalf recognizes, you know, when he says, don't give the ring to me, I don't think he's afraid there, but I think he sees, like, no, wait, that could go badly very easily, right? Um, and so he doesn't want it. It's not that he's afraid to touch it. It's not, again, it's not radioactive. It's not going to, like, shock him when he touches it. It's not, um, it's not about, it's about ownership. It's about possession. It's not about physical contact, right? So he can pick up the envelope and put it up on the, on the mantelpiece in chapter one. He can pick up the ring off the hearth and hand it to Frodo. Um, Frodo can put it in his hand and he can toss it in the fire, right? Um, he can do those things without becoming a possessor uh, of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, I know, okay, we just... some. Other people are asking that same question. Um, exactly. Good. Good. Um, yeah, no, okay. True. Uh, Lisa Linde is pointing out that he does say to Frodo, give me the ring for a moment, right? So he does become, for that second, the possessor. Um, but still, he's not even holding it, right? He says, give it to me for a moment. By the way, that's clearly a test as well. Will we do it? If he says to Frodo, give me the ring for a moment, is Frodo going to hand it over? I think the test is worth it to Gandalf. But he's not taking it to hold it. Again, remember, even if Bilbo had given him the ring to give to Frodo later on, he still would have been like, I am the holder of the ring, briefly. Right? That wasn't the case here. He's not saying, let me hold it for a little bit. He says, give it to me, and, and he knows he's asking for it so he can throw it in the fire. Right? And, which he immediately does. So he doesn't possess it. He's not asking to possess it. He's asking Frodo to hand it over for a minute. Him, Gandalf asking Frodo to hand it over for a minute is just like Tom Bombadil asking him to hand it over for a minute. Neither one of them is possessing it. Neither one of them is laying claim to it in any sense. right? And Gandalf makes that perfectly clear by chucking it in the fire as soon as he gets it. right? There can be uh, uh, no... Um, Gandalf is sending no mixed messages to the ring here right? when he's, uh, when he's holding it. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. I wanted to talk about the ring verse as well tonight, but I'm running out of time and it's okay. That was a transition to the next bit anyway, so we'll talk about that next time. Um, I hope that this has been helpful in thinking through Gandalf's position. The stuff about his 
his own guilt and the, the clear acknowledgement that he knew, knew it was a dangerous ring of power, even suspected that it was likely the one for decades, even while Bilbo had it, and confirms that he's been really pretty sure that it was the one ring, or at least he's been working actively to prove that it is or isn't, right, for 17 years ever since Bilbo left, shows he's not been slow on the uptake. That's not his problem. He was making a calculated risk, and he knew. He knew it was dangerous for Frodo, and he feels guilty about that. Um, he knows that he has signed, he has unilaterally signed Bilbo up, uh, or Frodo, sorry, signed Frodo up for custodianship of something that's going to harm him. And he feels it. He's aware of it. But there was nothing else that he could do, right? Um, okay. All right. Field trip time. Let's do, uh... Let's uh, let's do our field trip. So today, since we're, um, yeah, I was thinking there are going to be folks maybe on Twitch that'll leave us. Sure. And I wanted to make sure everybody knows that next week we are going to be on Brandywine at a yes. different time. Oh yes. We have a kin. Very yeah, important. We have a kin who is a um, European kin on Brandywine. So our time next week is going to be 3 p.m. Eastern time. That's right. Yeah, special time next week, and we'll send out notices through social media and everything. Um, but yes, we're not going to be meeting at a normal time next week, 3 p.m. Eastern time. We're meeting at a year. We, you know, I, I promised people that we would be doing uh, some of our sessions at, at, at a Europe-friendly time, which I know this is emphatically not a Europe-friendly time of day. Uh <laughs> So we do want to uh, be. I, I would have wanted to do that anyway. The fact that it's a that it's a a, a European Lotro kinship that's hosting us that week gives us the uh, uh, sort of the occasion for for making that particular inclusive step. So thank you for reminding me because that is super important. Even if you're yeah. not meeting us in game, uh, uh, the regular class will be happening six and a half hours right. earlier than usual next week. Right. I want to make sure I got that before people left Twitch. Yep. Yeah. So carry on. I bet you guys can't guess where we're going to head to tonight. Today we're going to go to somewhere we've never been. Oh no! Wait, we have the Shire. Right. We're 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 going to the Shire more because you know we're 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 in um uh still in Bag End, right? We're we're still uh um uh. You know, we, we haven't uh, gone out and started traveling yet. When we do, we'll follow the path of the fellowship and we'll look at some related things. But I wanted to take this opportunity to travel around the Shire like we did last week. Um, so uh, so for those of you who are here with me in game on the Landreval server and want to come along in our field trip, we are going to go to Mickle Delving again and we'll ride out from Mickle Delving. We'll go from Mickle Delving to Hobbiton, but then we're going to head out in a different direction. I want to head out uh, uh, to the to the to the east and then the north of uh, uh, of the Shire again. We went up north and west out to uh, uh, to bind to the uh, Bindbowl Wood and uh, the Rushik Bog and to uh, uh, to Needlehole last time. Uh, this time I want to head out uh, to some of those other names which appear on Tolkien's Shire map, but which uh, never really uh, come to actually mean anything in practice. So let's head out to Mickle Delving for those of you who want to come riding with me. I'm going to just uh, quick horse it from here. So yeah. gather yourselves around the folks or around me. I can also port someone. Um, 
Otherwise, you can get your uh, horses at the at the uh, stables. We are going to end up in Hobbiton, so if you have a milestone yeah. in Hobbiton, yeah, we're going to end up in Hobbiton. You can go there. All right. See, mount up here and then head down to the stable. Good to see you again. Off to Mickle Delving again this week, Bill. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Um, cool. All right. Okay, so here we are in Mickle Delving. I'll mount up from here. And we'll head out to Hobbiton. Hey! Hey, Maven, look, it's nighttime. Oh, yay! <laughs> I know you were hoping it would be nighttime. Yes! For tonight's exploration. Maven loves Budgeford at night. Budgeford Under the Stars is especially entertaining. <laughs> Excellent. There you go. Look at that. Like so. Oh yeah. Yeah, we have plenty of plenty of darkness still in front of us here. Okay, so here we're coming into Waymeet as usual. Now I've um. I, uh, a couple things I wanted to say here. First is I have finally done what I had meant to do last week and forgot to do, which is actually get an image of that Tolkien painting I keep referring to. And I, I want to show it to you when we get to the, to the, to the view again, so that you can, uh, you can see what I mean, uh, when talking about how, how closely they have, uh, patterned Hobbiton and the Hill in the game on Tolkien's own imagination of it, not just what he describes in the text, but what he actually depicted. Because Tolkien, I get, people do forget that Tolkien was a painter. It was really important to Tolkien. Um, he had a very visual imagination, um, and it's clear that a lot of his prose is designed to try to capture in words the pictures that he saw in his head. Um, of uh, these, especially landscapes in particular, which is why we get so much rich landscape description uh, in the Shire. So, or not just in the Shire, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, let me. I want to get around that tree. Yeah, good call right here. Okay, so the scale is different, um, but here let me uh, let me let me let me bring it over. Let's see. Okay, there it is. Of course, it's in the daylight and we're in the darkness here. But if you look at this, you can see the um, 
the um, the bridge crossing the water, right? And the road that comes up and loops around to the right. Then you can see uh, these buildings down here. With you see these little uh, these little round roofs here of what look like silos or something next to this larger, uh, clearly, you know, not domestic building, right? Here's the mill, which you'll notice in Tolkien's uh, painting is uh, much grander, right? It's made out of bricks. This is the biggest difference between what they, how they did Hobbiton uh, in the game and how Tolkien imagined it. Um, that is that the Sandyman's mill is a much bigger deal, right? It clearly, clearly a cut above, uh, more, richer and more expensive than all the other uh, dwellings there about. Um, anyway, there's, uh, so there's Bagshot Row, right? One, two, three. So you've got, uh, you know, coming off to the left from the road, going up the hill. There's this cutting, right, in the side with the picket fence, you know, with the, the white fence that leads up to the door of Bag End right here with the, the windows in the side of the hill and that little terrace where Bilbo's garden is up on top. So if you remember from our, our visits... That's exactly what we can see now. It doesn't look exactly the same in large part because the scale is more accurate here. That is to say that the proportions are more accurate. Tolkien apologized for that a lot. He he didn't like his own paintings, um, or he often spoke slightingly, I will say, of his paintings. And one of the things that he um, was often most slighting of is the scale, that he didn't put things to scale. He wanted to have things to scale, but it didn't work or it didn't end up looking right. Um, this is why, for instance, in the famous conversations with Smaug painting that Tolkien made, the one with, uh, you know, Smaug lying on the, the huge pile of treasure with the big, like the pots with the runes and everything around on the side and Bilbo and that kind of cloud of mist, right? The shadowy invisible Bilbo bowing before Smaug. You've, you've seen that picture. Um, in that one, Bilbo is, he, he, Tolkien complained about that. He's like, Bilbo, it's way out of scale. Bilbo shouldn't be anything like as big as that compared to Smaug. He should be tiny. But he couldn't re- represent him that tiny. And st- he wanted, Tolkien wanted to get the whole room and the dragon and the whole horde in the picture. Um, and if he did, then Bilbo to scale would be this tiny, would, would look like an ant or something uh, on the screen, you know, on, on, on the page. And he didn't want that. So similarly too, the mill, of course, with the hill in proportion like that um, is uh, is much smaller than Tolkien has made it in the foreground of this picture. Um, but And of course, we're not getting all of Hobbiton in the foreground. But anyway, so, so, so yes, the bridge, the road, the bridge, the mill, the river, the winding of the road, the cutting up there with, uh, with the fence, uh, as we've seen it when we get up there, uh, Bagshot Row, the three granaries down there, um, the, the, the main departure that Lotro has done is the, uh, is the mill. The mill looks like a hobbit house. Um, it fits with hobbit architecture as Tolkien's picture doesn't fit with it, actually. Uh, Tolkien's own picture is, is inconsistent to how he went on to describe hobbit houses. I mean, notice that um, it's not just the mill. Notice this house, which looks like an English cottage, right? I mean, this, 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 uh, this little house with the you know, the, the thatch roof and the, the whitewash was got round windows, but apart from the round windows, like, you know, this, this little cottage could be a cottage from, a, from, 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 from a Miss Marple adventure or something. Right. Um, but, uh, it doesn't look like a hobbit house in the way that he's described hobbit houses, which were, as he says in the prologue, uh, of the fellowship of the ring, basically built versions of smiles. Um, but, uh, but this painting clearly predated his, thinking those things through fully 
in that uh, in that same way. Um, anyway, so again, the way in which uh, this this uh, this this view uh, really captures, I think, very very deliberately captures um, that uh, painting, and the only way it differs from it is actually to be more consistent with Tolkien's world than Tolkien's own painting was, which is kind of kind of cool. But anyway, all right, we've uh, we've gone down into Hobbiton enough times. So let's go down the road. Uh, let's carry on and go uh, past the next town over, which is, of course, as we know, Bywater. And uh, thinking of um, of uh, the comment that um, who was it? Oh, not a cat. That not a cat made on the dis- on the the uh, discussion board um, about the how the Green Dragon of Bywater would obviously be the Cotton family's local pub. Um, we can see it. So there, of course, we're on the road up here. That's Bywater down there. We can see there's the brick building. You can see the, the sign of the Green Dragon here from a distance, right? So there's the Green Dragon right down in Bywater. Um, that's the Cotton House right up this hill here. So this is South Lane. We just passed the Three Farthing Stone. This is the Cotton's House. Um, so we can see, uh, let's see, this is, uh, there's Rosie herself, right? This is Tom, her dad. Notice how their house is brick, just like, um, just like the Green Dragon, right? They have this, uh, sort of blue collar brick house. Got two of her brothers. Rosie's been acting a bit queer ever since Sam moved away, right? Yeah, there's Jolly. This is probably Nibs over here, right? Yeah, Nick. Yeah, exactly. Nibs. Um, so uh, yeah, so 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 here's here's the Cotton family residence. You know, if we go over, we can see looking down into Bywater and the Green Dragon. So yeah, absolutely, the Green Dragon would obviously be the family pub of the Cotton family. So uh, that's uh, I think uh, I think that Not a Cat has uh, has Sam dead to rights on that one. That he has probably some ulterior motives for uh, drinking at the Green Dragon. Um, this, of course, is Frogmorton. Now, Frogmorton is not only uh, mentioned on the map, it gets a, me- a, a reference in the narrative later on, during the scouring, not now. Um, and the primary thing that we learn about Frogmorton is that it is... Um, uh, we learn about the pub here. Uh, that uh, there is uh, the, 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 the inn called the Floating Log, um, and that it's a good inn by all accounts. That's what we know about it. Um, so here is the Floating Log Inn. Uh, there's not much in Frogmorton. There's some, uh, uh, there's some houses and stuff, but of course, what do we know in the books, right? We know that there's an inn called the Floating Log. We know that it's called Frogmorton, and we can see from the map that it seems to be in Lowlands. So look how they've envisioned it here, right? We have uh, this being a town in a swampy area, uh, which is infested with frogs. or the frogs all over the place around here, uh, you know, which, which clearly give the place its name. Uh, from all the all the, the 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 frogs that live here, I love the there's a there's a quest you can do in Frogmorton, uh, where somebody has has tamed one of the wild frogs and raised it, um, and it grew into a really big and mean frog that then escaped. But of course, my favorite touch is that they named the frog Lobelia, <laughs> so this like huge, ugly, bad-tempered frog uh, that they were raising is named Lobelia, and you've got to go like track down Lobelia out in the swamp and everything. Um, it's fun. 
so uh, anyway, uh, uh, the 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 sort of the whole like frog Morton, Morton culture, you know, having a having a sort of a you know sort of marshland, uh, you know, swamp living hobbit um, uh, uh, sort of subculture here is is ne- I know she's a toad technically. You're right, Lobelia is a toad. You're absolutely right. Uh, notice the willow trees all over. Right, because because uh, of course there would be willow trees um, this close to water, right? Uh, uh, here on the frog moors, um, uh, they do uh, willow trees. Of course, do in fact grow right down, you know, in and next to uh, the water. Here are some of the you can see the 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 frogs, um, the wild hill toads that are everywhere. I just had the opportunity to tap in on that toad apparently. Um, so, uh, so yeah, lots of, uh, lots of frogs. So, again, they take the opportunity in Lotro to sort of flesh out the terrain of the Shire as well. We saw the Rushic Bog, and now we see the Frogmoors, two areas of uh, swamp and bog in the Shire, which, again, are on the map. Um, but the Shire, if you think about it, the Shire sort of terrain that's depicted, we think of the, the Shire as, you know, sort of lush farmland and... Um, uh, uh, you know, kind of rolling grassland and, you know, wooded areas and stuff. But, of course, there's quite a bit of variety in the Shire, again, according to the map, but not according to the narrative. Um, so we, we we get a chance to sort of explore the whole of the Shire. Butchford interests me for a couple reasons. Um, because, of course... Uh, Budgeford is uh, is here on the map, south of Bridgefields. Or, you know, it's the, the town in the south of... Uh, Bridgefields, and um, anyway, there's uh, local color here, which is, a, and this is the thing that only comes out at night. So there's this person in the fields uh, who walks up and down, saying, "I'm coming for you, ha ha, Odovacar. I am coming for you." It's a name of a local hobbit. Um, Fear my wrath, Bulgers of Budgeford. First Budgeford, then the Holiest Farthing, tomorrow the Shire, and you see he's all dressed in black and everything. Um, the Bulgers are doomed, he says. I bring terror to the styes of Budgeford. Uh, he's pretending to be a black rider. So the stories, of course, the black riders have passed through and they've been noticed. Uh, and it's really interesting to me to think, of course, we, we are told, uh, you know, in the story about what happens in the Shire after they leave. But we know that the Black Riders were seen, right? I mean, after all, remember, Ham Gamgee had a conversation with one of the Black Riders, right? And if you don't think that Ham Gamgee was telling that story down at the Ivy Bush every night for the next month and a half, then you don't know Ham Gamgee, right? Obviously, he's going to tell everybody who will listen and many who will not the story of the conversation he had with this black chap, right, who came up to Bagshot Row and hissed at him in the night asking for Mr. Baggins. So, and then there are others, right, who will have encountered, Farmer Maggot encountered them, right, and he probably would tell his neighbors about it too. So stories are going to be circulating around the Shire about the Black Riders. Now, we never get any ideas, right, we never get any idea in the, um, uh, within the book of what kind of cultural impact this had, right? Surely the showing up of black riders in the Shire asking, you know, mysterious big men, apparently, right, big folk, asking questions about Baggins, that's going to be a nine days wonder, minimum, right? Um, 
what would be the, so here we have what I think is a really clever um, a really clever uh, uh, response to that, right? Where one of these hobbits has uh, has decided that he's going to, you know, that clearly there's been this like, you know, it's 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 like a ghost story, right? People are telling rumors. There's been there've been there's been talk about the uh, uh, these mysterious black riders. So this hobbit takes it upon himself to dress up as a black rider and try to terrorize uh, the region, sort of mischievously. Right, so the mischievousness, the mischievousness of it, uh, and you know his like sort of trying to take advantage of all the rumors and gossip that's spreading around. It seems to me perfect. I love that. Uh, and so, of course, if you are, um, uh, if you come questing to this area, you know, as a lower level character, if you if you start a hobbit, say, uh, then you will have the opportunity to try to solve. You, you will come to Budgeford and talk to citizens in Budgeford who are terrified of black riders, uh, and uh, it's. Um, it's pretty cool. So exactly, Matthew. He's totally cosplaying a black rider. That's absolutely what's happening here. Um, now, Budgeford itself is kind of interesting. We don't know, you know. So the Bulgers live in Budgeford, right? Okay, fine. Um, what's what's here in Budgeford again? Like, what do you make of this, right? So here it is on the map. Frogmorton. At least we had something to work with, right? The name frogs, the idea of the frogmores, and swamps, right? Okay, so we had some. But what about Budgeford? What do we have? It's in the southern bridge fields. What does that tell us? We don't know, right? So what do they do? So they make stuff up. What do we get here? We get, um, we get agricultural stuff, right? We see, we see there, you know, there are places where they're growing. So you know, with we, we've got people with, with crops all over the place. There's got to be somewhere where they raise livestock, um, and what livestock do they rely upon most in the Shire, right? What food? What meat? Do we hear of them eating most often? Bacon, obviously, right? Bilbo with his bacon and eggs. Somebody's got to got to keep Bilbo in bacon and eggs. So if you wander around the Shire, you will be able to find a chicken farm where chickens are raised and from which eggs are sold. And you will be able to find uh, uh, pork farms, pigsties here in Budgeford, all over the place so that we can supply all of the Shire well with eggs and bacon. Uh, which, again, we know for a fact that, um, um, that, they, uh, that they do. Oh, I forgot, uh, I forgot, hang on, come down to the river for a second. I forgot my friend the Took down here. I love this guy. This guy is an awesome Took down here at the forest. So this is, uh, this is a shallow, you know, where the road crosses the river. And uh, over here, so there's this boat... And there's this guy beached in his boat. I'm having an adventure. I paddled all the way from Frogmorton. And this local bounder is like, are you trying to kill yourself? And he's trying to paddle down to the Brandywine. Uh, you crazy Took, you're as mad as a Baggins. Right, so notice how Took is no longer the standard for madness and adventurousness. Right, now Baggins is. Um, but I love this little Took out here who thinks that taking a boat... Right from from uh, uh, you know from 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 Bywater all the way down to the Brandywine River, he's having an adventure. <clears throat> this is a big adventure, messing around with boats, right? Uh, traveling all this distance from you know the middle part of the Shire all the way out to the East Farthing into the river, to the edge of the world, practically, right? This is a <clears throat> this is a big adventure, and to see the sort of skeptical reaction <clears throat> of the locals as they're telling him he's nuts to do something like that. Again, I think that that little exchange um, 
is uh, is is a really uh, well captured little piece of Hobbit culture there. Um, all right, so let's move on to the north. North of Budgeford, uh, we get another town, and uh, another town which is on the map. But uh, I mean, again, all these things are on the map, um, and we do know one thing about it. <laughs> one thing that is mentioned again in the narrative. This is about Scary. Uh, and uh, we're told that there's a quarry at Scary. That's all we know about Scary. There's a quarry there. Um, so, okay. That's kind of... But we don't know anything else about it. So they put... They've, they've made Scary up here in the southern greenfields, just north of Budgeford. Uh, and they've put a quarry there. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to give credit to... Uh, I think it was uh, T. Thurston again who made a really an interesting observation which I, I hadn't thought of, or at least if I had I'd forgotten it, um, about the Bindbowl Wood. Again, the Bindbowl Wood is on the, the you know Tolkien's Hobbit map, or you know Shire map, um, but there's no idea of what that name means, right? Bindbowl? And what, I mean, because bowl, B-O-L-E, means the trunk of a tree. In what sense is that is that wood the Bindbowl Wood, right? Um, in the game, in the quests, they actually give a literal meaning to that, of course. Remember the walking tree that we found up in the North Farthing? Remember it was being attacked by spiders, and uh, in the quest you have to free it from the webs, which are binding it, right? So that the, the bowl of that tree is actually bound by the spiders. Uh, so they have contrived to sort of at least kind of make a pun on the name of the forest in the adventure that they send you on. I was talking about how it's kind of a stretch to have um, uh, spiders in the Shire, which it kind of is, um, but uh, but hey, you know, again, they kind of they kind of make it work. So here we are in Scary, which is a mining town, right? This is where this is where uh, all the uh, you know the the stone and everything. There's lots of things built out of stone. Lots of people's houses are built out of stone. Um, so we see a lot of that. And this, of course, this place is infested by giant spiders too here in the quarry. Um, and I don't really know any good rationale for it. Again, it's, it's, it seems to me a kind of thing like we want to fill this, the quarry with scary monsters. We need something. And so they give, you know, some of the only monsters that are Hobbit related in the books, nowhere near here, of course. But again, it seems to be one of those places where they're just sort of compromising with, um, uh, with, uh, the need to, have adventures and to make uh, opponents to uh, uh, to have to fight through. I will say that the giant spiders do succeed in making. I mean, I'm not saying that I necessarily suspect the Lotro developers of of uh, of uh, succumbing to a mere pun in this way, but the giant spiders do certainly make the quarry scary. Um, my eight-year-old. Uh, was a little bit terrified of the of the of the quarry here. He he did the quarry quest on his own and died. Uh, the spiders the spiders killed him, um, and he was uh, he was he was a little spooked to come back to the. Uh, to, you know he was like he asked me he was like, do I have to finish that quarry quest? And I'm like, no, you don't you, you don't have to. It's okay. Uh, I helped him finish the epic one so that he could move on, but uh, uh, in the epic line, that is. But anyway, yeah, it's uh, so, so again, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if they just uh, if they uh, were indulging in the in the sort of the, the pun of scary, which is clearly not what Tolkien had in mind uh, when he made it. 
Um, doubtless he could explain the etymology of scary, but um, but anyway. So next we have uh, 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 Brockenberry. So we're going to be entering that here any second. Where's my text saying that we're entering the town? I'm almost downtown now. There it is, Brockenborings. Um, so here we are in Brockenborings. I must, as I always do, compulsively introduce myself to the what stable master. Hey there, yeah, good to hear you. Okay. Um, so now this is a town again of which we know absolutely nothing at all. Um, so what do we have up here? What? How do they? How do they flesh this out? Well. Um, if you look at the map, we were in Overhill last time. So remember, Overhill was this town in the middle of the forest, right? In the middle of the Bindbowl Woods. So they made it into like a, a logging forester's town, right? Wood cutting and stuff like that. So we have a we have a wood cutting town over here in Overhill. We have a stone cutting town over here in Scary, right? And we have a road that heads out north. Uh, to uh, to Oatbarton and some other settlements that are up there to the north of the greenfields. So what do they do in Brockenborings? They make it into like a little market town here. See, we've got this uh, this central place where we have uh, you know these sort of market and crafting areas, kind of like Bywater. So both Bywater down here and Brockenborings up here are the two sort of mercantile towns that we see where the centerpiece seems to be sort of the crafting center uh, and the market fair, and that. Again, see, it makes good sense. I love this kind of world building that they've done. Um, and again, to me, it's so much fun. This is it's one of the things I really envy uh, the Lotro developers for, is the opportunity to kind of sit down with this stuff and say, okay, given, given the few things that, you know, let's take the few things that we know, put them in the game, right? And then let's, uh, uh, let's make, up, make up the rest of the stuff, right? Um, with... Uh, you know, to, to, to make it all fit. Let's just kind of flesh it out uh, and, uh, and, and, and build it, right? And make it into a community as a whole that makes sense, right? So we've got, you know, we, we've got places where we're raising our eggs and bacon. We've got uh, places where we're getting our stone. We've got places where we're uh, getting our wood um, and a, a couple places where we're selling things. And of course, there's an important monument up here in the Brockenboring. So of course, there's... Uh, Something, of course, this is just south of the Greenfields. And everybody, of course, should remember what happened in the Greenfields, obviously, which is the spot of the only battle so far to date in the Shire, right? When Bandobras, the bull roarer, took, uh, defeated Gullfimble, the goblin king of Mount Graham. And here's the statue commemorating the event. And so here's bull roarer took with the goblin head the decapitated goblin head on the ground and his foot propped up on it. And, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll try to... Let's see if I can, if I can turn my camera up here. Yeah, and there, there he is with his, with his golf club. All right, let's see if I can zoom in on myself here. Yeah, there's his golf club. I'm going to back up a little bit here. Um, ooh, that's, that's a good shot of roarer actually with the moon right over his head yeah it's very cool um so yeah he, he's got his he's got his he's got his club which looks decidedly like a golf club he actually looks instead of looking like he's playing golf 
uh, he looks like he's playing, um, uh, oh, what is it? I'm blanking. The game with the mallets where you hit the ball, you step on the ball and you hit it. Um, darn it. Why am I blanking on the, on the, uh, uh, croquet. Croquet. Yes. Thank you. Croquet. Goodness. What's wrong with me? Yes. He looks like he's playing, he's playing croquet instead of golf, but that's okay. Um, and, and I, I agree. I love his pipe. Uh, so, so the, the fact that he's like jauntily got a pipe in his mouth as he is like uh, uh, getting ready to tee off on Golfimbo's head, and I love how Golfimbo is—he's given like little horns, not not to meant like the big funny goblin ears, but he's given these little like horns sticking up off his head and these like googly eyes, <laughs> and it's a very you know sort of like comical and mocking image of Golfimbo, the uh, the Goblin King. Um, I love the fact that this commemorative statue is not. In a sense, of course, it's heroic. It's larger than life, um, but uh, but it's not exactly a very um, grandiose picture, right? This is not um, doesn't exactly look like you know one of the uh, uh, one of the the, the statues of, of uh, you know generals that you'll find around Washington D.C. or something like that. Um, uh, it's kind of jaunty and kind of fun and uh, not quite belittling what he did, but um, having fun with it, clearly. It's like the embodiment, not of the moment, but of the joke inspired by the moment, right? And that's that's really kind of cool. And that seems, that, that again also does seem really Hobbit-like. You'll notice, of course, that it's carved out of the trunk of a, uh, of a huge tree. Um, yeah, yeah. So... It's uh, it's pretty cool. I, I'm I'm always a big fan of the uh, uh, of the bull roarer statue here. Um, cool. All right. So there we go. Yeah, I th- I forgot for a second. I have a. This is a new version of the game that I just installed, and I uh, uh, I'd forgotten that I I was trying to move the camera with the hotkeys that I had set up for that, but I'd forgotten that they're not set up in this version yet. Um. Anyway, cool. So, uh, so looking at the map, we've we've uh, journeyed over most of the Shire. I, we haven't done down here in the Green Hill Country and Stock and Woodall and Tuckborough, uh, but the reason for that is that we're saving that for uh, for later because, of course, when Frodo uh, and his friends set out, when we when some fine day we reach Chapter Three, which we may indeed do before the month of February is out, then. We'll be heading down that way and looking at the uh, the the terrain that they crossed down there. Um, yeah, good. So, um, excellent. So, thank you for joining. It's getting late now. I should let you guys go anyway. Um, but uh, thanks very much, everybody, for your um, uh, for coming with me. Thanks for joining me for our, our class tonight, and then our, our our travelings around the Shire here, looking at uh, Shire economy and Shire world building as the Ocho folks have done it. I've really enjoyed this as always. Now, don't forget, as I, as we said before, we're going to be on the Brandywine server next week, and we're going to be happening at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So earlier in the day, don't forget. Now, if you do miss it, of course, as always, it will be recorded. Videos of this are available on our YouTube channel, the Signum University YouTube channel. And... Um, uh, and the um, uh, 
Uh, and the audio recording will be posted to the Tolkien Professor podcast. But uh, thanks very much, everybody. And thanks again to the Lonely Mountain Band for hosting me here tonight. You guys were awesome. We had a great turnout here on Langevel tonight. And I appreciate uh, all of your, 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 your fellowship and company here this evening. So thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week for more of the backstory of The Ring. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.